Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. baptismal built into the front of every Baptist church uh, where, every, where new believers can be publicly immersed during a baptismal service. While the construction of this new Baptist church was nearly finished uh, with the baptistry functioning, even though the changing rooms to change from, from your wet to your dry clothes after the immersion uh, were not yet complete. So when a baptism was being performed, uh, these huge sheets uh, were hung temporarily where those who were just baptized could change. Well, Sister Balula, heavyset woman, was making her way down into the water, terrified of going under. The pastor tried to reassure her that it was totally safe. But she panicked as she was being lowered into the water, clawing the air for anything to keep her from going down. Within her grasp was a curtain hung behind the baptistry. <laughs> which formed the front barrier of the men's changing room, <laughs> which she desperately grabbed at with all her might. <laughs> there, having just been baptized and changing out of his wet clothes, was Brother Ezekiel, completely naked. <laughs> Realizing something that was dreadfully wrong, he turned around only to see the entire congregation gaping at him. <laughs> Assessing the situation quickly, <laughs> And seeing Sister Blula holding the sheet in total shock, he did the first thing that came to his mind. He dived into the baptistry <laughs> with the preacher and the pedestrian woman there, and, she, and he grabbed the sheet back from Sister Blula. <laughs> Sister Blula promptly fainted, took four men to lift her out of the baptist, baptist, baptistry. The church was never the same. <laughs> well, on, on rare occasions, the curtain is lifted to unveil things normally kept from view. <laughs> Second Kings 2, for instance, is another example where we see Elijah's death is viewed from heaven's perspective as the prophets carried away into heaven by horses and chariots of fire. A similar scene is described in Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is carried away by angels into Abraham's bosom. And at both the birth and the immersion of Yeshua, the veil Concealing his glory is lifted, and the heavens are open, revealing the angelic host. And in his transfiguration, once again, the veil is lifted, allowing Peter, James, and John to see a preview of the kingdom of God. Well, in our study today, Daniel 10, we see another example of the veil, the curtain, being lifted, allowing us to see the otherwise unseen spiritual world operating behind, you know, behind our own world. The setting for chapter 10 is that Daniel has just been praying for the return of his people back to Israel uh, and for the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, and as he saw the 70 years of captivity prophesied by Jeremiah coming to a close. That prayer occurred in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
And God was faithful to answer that prayer. And Cyrus made a decree allowing the Jews uh, to return home to Israel. We talked about this last week, in fact. Well, chapter 10 opens in the third year of Cyrus, two years later. And do you know what happened? A very disheartening and discouraging reality had set in. Because the people, for the most part, refused to go back. They were comfortable, paganized, assimilated, enmeshed in Babylonian society, prosperous, absorbed, too involved with the good life of Babylon to care about the promised land, too preoccupied with making money to care about rebuilding Jerusalem. They were too assimilated to care about restoring the temple. So they showed no signs of leaving Babylon. In Israel, they had been an agricultural people, keepers of herds and flocks. Uh, but when taken into exile in Babylon, they could no longer do this. So they turned from a nation of sheep keepers into a nation of shopkeepers. They founded uh, the Macy's and the Sacks and the Walmarts of Babylon. <laughs> uh, they were prosperous and fat and happy in Babylon. Who wanted a hard, pioneering life of rebuilding Jerusalem? The book of Ezra tells us that only 42,000 went back, while myriads upon myriads stayed behind. Many had been born in captivity, and all they knew was Babylon. All their friends and their movie theaters and their shopping malls and their favorite hair salons were in Babylon. I mean, there wasn't a single Prada store in Jerusalem. <laughs> but Daniel knew that it was the Lord's will for his people to return to the promised land. And that, that was where the Lord's blessing and, and promises and fulfillment lay. So in the third year of Cyrus, chapter 10 opens, we find Daniel praying to the Lord to stir up his people to return back to Israel. So let's turn to Daniel 10, verse 1. In the third year of, of Koresh, Cyrus, uh, king of Persia, uh, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was called, also called Belteshazzar, uh, and the word was true and one of great warfare, one of great conflict. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. Notice that Daniel, Daniel describes the word and the vision that he was given as one of great warfare or conflict. The Hebrew here is this popular word, this famous word, zavah, the word for the army, for the host, like the, the host of heaven, heaven's armies, uh, also a word for warfare. Daniel's final vision, which spans chapters 10, 11, and 12, is going to involve a revelation of spiritual warfare, war in heaven, and how it affects events here on earth. Look at Daniel 10, verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks, literally weeks of days. In contrast, in chapter, back in chapter 9 last week, we, saw, we talked about weeks of years. Uh, so Daniel's been faithfully praying for three weeks. Uh, but there's been no response from heaven. Contrast this what we saw last week uh, in Daniel 9, where the angel Gabriel came and answered his prayer even before Daniel was finished speaking. Verse 3, Daniel 10, verse 3. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did, I, nor did any meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the three weeks were completed. Most of us have trouble praying continually for anything, let alone praying and fasting for three weeks. But now three weeks later, he gets an incredible response. Verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, the river Tigris, I lifted my, my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man dressed in linen, 
whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Ufaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. Uh, his arms and his feet were like gleams of, of uh, were like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of many waters. This is an amazing being standing before Daniel. Uh, he's in the form of a man, dressed in linen and gold, but with a shining, dazzling appearance like the Shekhinah itself. His face like lightning, uh, eyes like flaming torches. His body like polished bronze, which, which gleams in the sunlight. His voice like the tumult of ocean waters. Who can this be? It brings immediately to mind Yochanan, John's vision of, of Yeshua in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. I'll put this on the overhead. In John, this is John's vision. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it was been, uh, caused to glow in the furnace. And his voice, like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in its strength. Do you see the parallel with the man described in Daniel 10. Almost identical. Almost the exact same description in Daniel 10 and Revelation chapter 1. This is the Messiah. This is Yeshua in all his glory. Uh, the uncreated, eternal Son of God. Daniel sees his vision of the pre-incarnate Yeshua. Indeed, we do see Yeshua appearing from time to time you know, throughout the Tanakh. Uh, usually in the form of, of the Malchadonai, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is the divine presence manifesting himself in our world in time and space. Uh, and usually it's in his role as a deliverer and protector of his people. Same role as Yeshua. Let's look more closely at this vision of Daniel and, and the parallel vision of John in Revelation. Uh, because through these descriptions, they're painting a portrait, not only of Messiah's physical appearance, but more importantly of his character. Both Daniel and John see Yeshua clothed with a long robe made of fine linen. This is the garment of priests. Uh, in Ezekiel and Mark and elsewhere, we see angels clothed in white linen. It's the image associated with heaven, with, with priestly uh, intercession, uh, bringing the prayers of the people before the throne of God. It's also a symbol of the Lord's holiness. Second, both, both Daniel and John, they, uh, they say that his waist was girded with a belt of pure gold. Gold speaks of divine sovereignty and majesty. Daniel next says, Daniel says his body was like pure beryl, which is this transparent, brilliant, flashing jewel, reflective of glory. We see divine holiness and, and majesty and glory all depicted in these images of Yeshua. John tells us this, Revelation 1, verse 14. Uh, his head and his hair was white like wool, white as snow, white hair, now, in our day, it's a little bit different, right? In our day, white hair is generally to be avoided. <laughs> it's a sign of, of aging and, and infertility. Only thing worse than white hair is what? No hair. <laughs> but the scriptures have a very different view. Look at Proverbs 16, verse 31. The, glor the, the gray hair is a crown of splendor attained 
I'm sorry, yes, attained by a righteous life. <laughs> that proverb is becoming one of my favorite. <laughs> John also says this being that he saw was that one like the son of man. This is taken right from Daniel 7, as we saw a few weeks ago. It's the divine image of the Messiah in his glory as the son of man, receiving his kingdom from the ancient of days. So Messiah, he's here depicted as one whose hair is white as wool, as pre-existing with the ancient of days. Uh, he has all the wisdom we associate with age, only he is eternal. He knows every detail about creation. He's never surprised. In fact, in John's vision, Revelation 1, verse 18, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Or in Hebrew, the Alpha and the Tav, uh, the A and the Z, uh, who was and who is and who is to come. Basically, he's saying, I was there in the beginning and I know the end. I know how it began, I was there. I know how it's all gonna end. Revelation 1, verse 17. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Hallelujah. John tells us the one who was revealed to him was none other than the Alpha, the Aleph and the Tav, the one who is pre-existing, eternal and uncreated, who knows all that's ever happened and all that ever will happen. The one who understands every bit about creation. The one who understands everything about you. Your mind, your heart, your history, your life. Not only does the Son of Man possess all wisdom, he also freely offers that wisdom to you. James 1, 23. If any one of you lacks wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. So I encourage you to ask the Lord for wisdom, for understanding, for discernment, for direction. Daniel and John, the next day, let's look at Daniel 10, verse 6. His face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. This is an image of power and omnipotence and glory, brilliant, dazzling light emanating from his countenance. His eyes are like lamps of fire, searching out that which is hidden knowing even the, the inward thoughts and the intentions of your heart. Hebrews 4.13 indeed tells us, there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to do, to whom we must give an account. This is omniscience. This is penetrating knowledge and insight and discernment. He knows everything. And his eyes of fire also purify us uh, and correct us. You know, even in our own world, there, there are pairs of eyes that cause us to behave differently, right? Just because they're focused on us. You know, for example, uh, you're on the road, you see a certain black and white car nearby, and the eyes of the driver of that car meet your eyes. Do you drive a little bit differently when that happens? <laughs> mothers also have eyes like that, right? In fact, we have this expression we commonly use, where does a mother have eyes? In the back of her head. <laughs> Not literally, of course, but meaning that moms have an uncanny way of knowing what's going on. <laughs> and when her eyes are on you, it is a way of changing the way you behave. John says the eyes of God are constantly watching. They miss nothing. Uh, he says they're, they're blazing like eyes of fire. Fire is that which purifies in the scriptures. I remember as a kid watching my father uh, grill steaks on our backyard grill. I said, Dad, how come you're flaming it like that? I was about six at the time. I was fascinated by fire. 
It's a very common stage for boys. It usually lasts until they're about 80, 90 years old. <laughs> My dad explained, you know, we flame the meat because it makes the food taste better. And because it purifies, uh, it destroys the harmful things that need to be destroyed so, so we can eat and be healthy. The Bible often uses images of fire as that which purifies. Revelation 3, 18. Yeshua counsels the congregation at Laodicea to buy for me gold refined by fire that you may be rich. Yeshua is talking about that which makes your character pure. To receive from God transformation. You will purify your heart and your life. Malachi, he likewise speaks of the refiner's fire. Of course, the refiner, what would they do? They would take gold or they'd put it uh, in a pot over fire. The heat would cause the gold to melt, bring up all the dross, all the impurities to the surface. Then the, the refiner, he'd skim, skim it off the surface, leave the gold so pure he could see his own face in it. That's what the Lord wants to do with you. He wants to refine your character to such an extent that Yeshua's character becomes visible in you. So he has eyes like flaming torches. When you do sinful or unrighteous or unloving or hateful or hurtful things, you don't want anyone to see, do you? But you need to remember the Lord has eyes of fire. He sees. He knows. Are you willing to live in the, under the purifying gaze of God? Are you willing to hear and receive a word of criticism from the Lord? And remember, sometimes the Lord speaks through a fellow brother or sister. Are you, are you willing to hear through, through them? And even if your brother or sister is flawed, are you willing to ask, well, what part of what, of, of what they're saying is the Lord speaking to me through them? Is your heart open for the Holy Spirit to convict you? Are you teachable? Do you have an accountability partner who can speak into your life? Is, uh, is your conscience tender so that when you wound someone, Yeshua can correct you? Uh, you know, the hard part of receiving correction is that the Lord often will do it through someone else who knows you. How well, ask yourself, how well do I take correction? When someone criticizes or rebukes me, do I listen for the voice of God? Or do I stiffen up and resist and get defensive and try to justify my behavior? God's holy gaze offers correction and will refine you into the image of his son if you will receive it and let him. And Daniel then says this, Daniel 10 verse 6, his arms and his legs were like the gleam of burnished bronze. And then parallel verse, John 115, uh, in Revelation 115, John says, his feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace. This image of Yeshua's feet refers to the Lord stamping out his judgment. The image of God's judgment. Reminds me also of Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this mighty figure. Remember this made up of all sorts of different precious metals, you know, gold, silver, bronze, iron, except for the feet. Remember that in Daniel 2? The figure in Daniel 2 had feet of clay. It represented the great Gentile kingdoms of history, but it had a vulnerable foundation. And because it had feet of clay, it was, it was ultimately destroyed. Look at Daniel 2, verse 35. It became like chaff, and the wind carried it away so that no trace could be found because it was built on shaky ground. Anything you or I build on, other than God's kingdom, is built on shaky ground. Build your house 
Oh, build your life uh, on money. Build your life on success or popularity uh, or power or pleasure. Whatever it is, one day the wind is going to blow it over and it's going to be gone like chaff in the wind. There will not be a trace of it left at all. Yeshua told this famous story about the foundational importance of knowing and obeying him. It's a story about the construction trade, uh, a business with, with which, of course, he was very familiar, having grown up in his stepdad's uh, carpentry shop. The story involves two men who both built houses. One built it on sand, the other on the rock. Matthew 7, 25, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house. And yet it did not fall, because it had a foundation on rock, the rock. Matthew 7, 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, it's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the, and the rain came down, and, and the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. There's something universal about this story that causes this story to keep popping up in various forms. A humble version of it, one of the best-known stories in all American literature, <laughs> uh, inspires, inspired uh, movies and songs and books, uh, goes something like this. Uh, here's the basic elements of the story, which we'll put uh, on the overhead. Uh, see if you can guess the story. Number one, in the story, the primary characters are builders. They each construct a house. Number two, not all houses are created, are, are created equal. There's a contrast between the wise, excuse me, the wise and the foolish builders. Number three, each house faces a test. If the house is built wisely, it stands. If it's built foolishly, it falls. Sound familiar? Can you guess? Give up? It's the story of the three little pigs. <laughs> Each little pig builds a house. One builds with hay and straw, one with sticks, one with bricks. But they all build, and they each faced the big bad wolf. Each one heard the same demand, open up and let me in. Each made the same response, not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. <laughs> and each one faced the same threat, that I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. Two of the pigs built their house out of junk. <laughs> they never stopped to ask a question, will it stand up to the wolf? Only the house built on wisdom endured. Uh, in the same way, we are all house builders. We all build a house. We place the word house with the word character or, or the word soul in Yeshua's parable of the wise and foolish builders. We're all of us constructing a life. We do this primarily by the choices that we make. Every commitment you make, every friendship you enter into, uh, every skill uh, you, you cultivate or neglect, every promise you honor or break becomes part of your house, part of your soul, of your character. You are constructing your life. The quality of the choices you make determine the quality of your character, your soul. We each face storms. The wolf comes to the door of every little pig. Yeshua says of both the wise and the foolish builders, the rain came down and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against the house. Yeshua, he, he wants to make it clear 
This is not a story about storm avoidance. You cannot build a house where there will be no storms. And of course, we prefer maybe something different. We prefer the tale of two climates, you know, two cities with different weather, the Northeast uh, and the Sun Belt. <laughs> and the house in Buffalo is buried by snow and flooded by rain and battered by winds. But the house in Malibu mellowed in surf and sun. <laughs> we all have to find the neighborhood where the wolf never knocks on the door. But it's in the storm that the soundness of the house is revealed. A foundation is not glamorous. Nobody visits your house and says, wow, what a great foundation you have. <laughs> no, no one knows until the storm. Until the perfect storm, that we, and of course the perfect storm you sure refers to the ultimate storm is the last judgment. One day your life and mine will be scrutinized by God. Every beam, every timber, every nail, every word and every deed will face a scrupulous examination. One day, the truth of our houses, the strength of our foundation will be revealed. Everyone builds a house, both the wise and the foolish. Every little piggy, everyone faces a storm. The wolf comes to every door. The question is, what are you going to build your life on? On the rock or on sand? On brick or on straw? What's the foundation? And what are you placing your ultimate trust? The parable of Matthew 7, Yeshua says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. What does that mean? He does them. He helps his fellow man. He cares for the poor and the widow and the orphan. He speaks words of kindness. He pursues justice. He walks in purity and love and humility. He forgives others. They're like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. But those who hear my words, he says, and do not do them like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Only the house built on the rock, only the house built on Yeshua will stand. He alone is our rock. And in Daniel's and John's vision, this Yeshua, he has feet of bronze, not clay, but bronze. Bronze combines the strength of iron and the endurance of copper. It's an unshakable foundation. No feet of clay for Yeshua. And then finally, both Daniel and John describe this divine being's voice as the sound of many waters, powerful, an image of unchallenged authority. He speaks with authority. A day is coming when every knee will bow, even the most proud and stubborn knees, and every tongue confess, Yeshua is Adon Ha'adonim, Lord of Lords, and Lamelch Nachim, King of Kings. And he shall rule from Yerushalayim over all the earth. So ask yourself today, am I wholly submitted to the authority of Messiah? Is there any area of my life where I'm holding out? Any sinful habits I'm not willing to give up? Any dark closets in my house, uh, in my heart, that remain locked against Yeshua's light? When Yeshua speaks to you in that still small voice inside you, how do you respond? He wants to be Lord of your life. Are you willing to say yes to that? So here in Daniel 10, we have in Daniel 10, we have this pre-incarnate appearance of Yeshua. 
We see this from time to time throughout the, the scriptures, throughout the Tanakh. And even, indeed, Yeshua says this in, in John 8, 56. He says, Abraham, even Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Yeshua was there in the Tanakh, granting uh, faith, repentance, forgiveness, grace, just as surely he was do- as he was doing it in the Gospels, just as he's still doing it today. The scriptures declare this in Hebrews 13, verse 8. Yeshua the Messiah, he's the same yesterday and today and forever. So to Daniel, alongside the Tigris River uh, and, and, and to John on Patmos, as they were seeking the Lord in prayer, the curtain dropped that separated them from the invisible spiritual kingdom. And they were able to see the very one to whom uh, and through whom they had been praying. The veil was lifted. They saw the Lord. Their, their eyes were open. Then they were able to see the invisible world of spiritual beings all around them. God, God pulls back the curtain and lets them see. And through them, and by reading his word, through lets us see what's really happening behind the scenes. There's a, very, a similar story in 2 Kings chapter 6 concerning the prophet Elisha. Uh, Israel's at war with Aram, with Syria. Every time the king of Aram plans an attack, uh, Elisha informs the king of Israel, warns him. So the Israelites, they're always prepared. And the king of Aram, he's never able to win a victory. The word finally reaches the king of Aram that that Elisha is the source of this leak. (laughs) And the king sends a whole army to Dothan, to Dothan, to capture uh, Elisha. The army comes by night and surrounds the village. In the morning, Elisha's servant wakes up sees the Syrian army surrounding the city, comes running to his master crying, Elisha, Elisha, look out there. Elisha sees the Syrian soldiers. The servant cries, what are we going to do? Elisha calmly replies, 2 Kings 6, 16, do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The servant questions, looks at Elisha, looks back at himself, counts one, Two <laughs> looks outside, see these myriads of Syrian soldiers. Uh, what am I missing here? He says. <laughs> then Elisha prays. Look at Second Kings six verse seventeen. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked. He saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha's servant saw the heavenly host arrayed in their defense. And then he understood Elisha's words. This is consistent promise throughout the scriptures. This promise, look at 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. There are greater forces on behalf of those who know the Lord and are his his servants than there are evil forces against you. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 reassures you that for this this momentary light affliction, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. But the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then Daniel continues, Daniel 10, verse 7. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, great dread fell upon them, and they ran away to hide themselves. 
This is the consistent testimony of Scripture when men are confronted with the presence and the holiness of God. Job, when he saw God, said this, Job 42, verse 6, he says, I abhor myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah, when he gets a glimpse of the Lord, says this in Isaiah 6, 5, woe is me. Uh, uh, you know, he says, uh, uh, I'm unclean, I'm undone. I'm, I said, I'm undone, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Habakkuk said this, Habakkuk 3.16, I heard the Lord and my inward parts trembled. At the, at, at the sound, my lips quivered. Rottenness entered my bones and in my place, I tremble. Simon Peter when he saw the power of Yeshua displayed, what did he say? Luke 5, verse 8. He says, Yeshua, please depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. He could not stand the scrutiny of the presence of God. Because when Peter was confronted with the holy, he immediately saw who God was, and in contrast, what he was not. Whenever the holy confronts the unholy, it's an utterly devastating experience. Or if only we too could just get a glimpse of God's holiness. It'll change your life. So Daniel's companions, they all flee. He's left alone. And he's also traumatized by the vision. Look at Daniel 10 verse 8. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me. For my natural color turned to a deadly pallor. And I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words. Uh, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. When Daniel sees uh, and hears the voice of Yeshua, he faints. He falls to the ground. He beholds the glory of God, and heaven has mastered him. What about you? Are you truly in awe of God? Are you mastered by his presence? We see a similar experience with Paul uh, when Yeshua appears to, to Saul of Tarsus right on the road to Damascus. Suddenly a light, you know, brighter than the noonday sun, shone all around him. He sees Yeshua in all his glory. Uh, and, and Paul, he falls to the ground just like Daniel did. Uh, the men who were with him saw nothing, only heard the sound of the voice speaking to Paul. Uh, and Paul reacts in the same way Daniel did. He's overwhelmed. He falls to the ground. He's like, he has no strength left in him. Similarly, in the book of Revelation, uh, when John sees Yeshua, Revelation 1.17, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And likewise, Daniel in our chapter is overwhelmed by this vision. He's now, he is now about to be taught something of the mystery of prayer. As a second being now, most likely the angel Gabriel, now appears to him with a message from heaven. So look at Daniel 10, 10. Then behold, a hand touched me, set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I've now been sent to you. And when he spoken the word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the very first day that you set your heart on understanding and on humbling yourself before the Lord, your God, your words were heard, and I have now come in response to your words. Well, here's a question. If the, if the angel was sent on the first day Daniel prayed, and he just arrives now, 21 days later, what took him so long? 
I mean, did this angel get lost in Babylon? <laughs> Daniel 10, verse 13. Here's the answer. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there, left there with the king of Persia. Now I've come to you to give you understanding of what will happen to your people in the end days. For the vision pertains to days yet to come. The second being now appears, this angel sent from God. He touches Daniel, helps him to his feet, and begins to reveal to him certain things about the power of prayer and spiritual warfare. Certain things will last chapters 10, 11, and 12. And Daniel, Daniel is recording all this so that we, so that you and I might learn the lesson of what takes place behind the scenes when you pray. How the very angels of God are involved. Hebrews 1.14 tells us the angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. Psalm 91.11 For he will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all his ways. The Malachim, the angels, are God's messengers to speak his words and to do his work, to carry out his will. And this angel tells Daniel, the very moment you began to pray, three weeks ago, God heard you. And the answer was on its way the minute you asked. But the answer did not arrive for three weeks. Why? What held it back? The angel reveals, Daniel 10, 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. There aren't only great and good angels, but also evil, fallen angels, demons, ready to oppose what God is doing. And in some remarkable way, we're told here that these demonic forces relate somehow to, to the nations of the world. This is the backstory behind the headlines in our newspaper. Behind the rulers and the nations, there are invisible powers at work, evil forces trying to control the hearts and the minds of men and women. Indeed, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. This is what the angel is telling Daniel. Behind the affairs of men is an invisible hierarchy of evil. And they're assigned to various countries under their control. Thus, the evil angel who had authority over the kingdom of Persia came and withstood the angel Gabriel, who had been sent to Daniel, held him back for 21 days. Then Michael, Michael, the archangel, the guardian of Israel, the chief angel of the heavenly army, comes to his aid and enables Gabriel to bring the answer to Daniel. Notice the related account in the Gospel of Mark, when Yeshua encounters this demon-possessed man. Look at Mark 5, verse 9. Yeshua asked the demon, what's your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged, listen to this, very interesting. He begged Yeshua again and again not to send them out of the area. Why? Because demons are apparently given certain geographical territory. And to be banned from their country, from their territory, means maybe they're, they're sent back to the abyss. You know, they're, they're taken out of circulation. Undoubtedly, there are evil angels assigned to the U.S., to stir up all sorts of trouble in our country, right? We see that quite a bit today. <laughs> there are demons assigned to, to Russia and to China and to North Korea and to Iran and to all the nations of the world. But Daniel tells us delays can occur in prayer. The next time your prayers aren't answered right away, 
Remember, you are engaged in conflict. Remember also, there's no demonic power, though, that ultimately can thwart the sovereign will of God. But for whatever reason, the Lord has chosen to partner with you in bringing about his will on earth. That's why your prayers are so vitally important. They have power. They matter. That's the lesson of Daniel chapter 10. So pray for one another. Pray for Etzchayim. Pray for our leaders. Pray for those who are sick among us or needing work or suffering the loss of a loved one. Pray for new believers to come to the Lord, for our Jewish people to find their Messiah. Daniel tells us that when you pray, you turn loose the very powers of heaven. When you pray in Yeshua's name, you have power to battle the very forces of darkness. When you pray in Yeshua, angels are sent to fight for you and to answer your prayers. Daniel 10, verse 15. And when he had spoken to me, according to these words, I turned my face to the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him, standing before me, O oh my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me. I've attained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such, as, with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains no strength in me, nor any breath has been left in me. This vision uh, had, had a powerful physical effect on Daniel, draining away his strength. It reminds us prayer can sometimes be a costly thing. It's hard work at times. Spiritually draining, costly. Sometimes we have to travail in agony in prayer. Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 12. Death is at work in us, but life in you. This is a commentary on intercessory prayer. Paul's saying you may go through agony to effectively, fervently pray for others on their behalf. You feel agony in order to give blessing to others. For example, you parents can do, for you, can, can do this for your children. When you see them getting in trouble, uh, when they're in rebellion, when, when they're, they're, they're deaf uh, and blind to what you say, and you see dangers that they don't see or they refuse to see, you can strive for them in prayer. You can agonize on their behalf, interceding for them to change their ways. Paul says again, 2 Corinthians 4.12, So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. You can travail in prayer on behalf of your children. So be encouraged. When your loved ones are stubborn and hard-hearted, and, and you can't reason with them, you can pray for them. Death can be at work in you, but life in them through your prayers. So enter into spiritual combat for their sakes. Your faith and prayers can accomplish in their life what would never be able to be done otherwise. And then finally, Daniel says this, Daniel 10, 18. Then one with a human appearance touched me again, strengthened me. And he said, oh man of high esteem, don't be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage, be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you've strengthened me. Then he said, do you understand why I came to you? But I'll now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. 
However, I'll tell you what's inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there's no one who stands firmly with me against these except Michael, your prince. Note that the angel refers Daniel again to this fight against the prince of Persia. It's happening again and again. That he has to return now to resume the struggle. He seems to be hinting here that these same forces who were against God's people in Daniel's day would continue to be opponents of God's people even until the end of the age. And who is the modern day successor to the prince of Persia? To the nation represented by the prince of Persia? Iran, right? Fanatical, radical Islamicists. Sworn enemies of Israel and sworn enemies of the Jewish people. It's all laid out in the scriptures. In Daniel's day, the enemy was trying to turn the Persian rulers against allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Its ultimate intention was to prevent the Messiah from being born one day in the land of Israel among his own people, according to the promise. But Daniel's prayer helped turn that around. We must not be ignorant of Satan's devices. Yeshua told Simon Peter in Luke 22, 31, Satan has asked to sift you, sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. That's what we see here in Daniel chapter 10. Satan is sifting God's people who are under Persian and then later Greek rule. But the captain of our salvation, Yeshua the Messiah, is building his congregation there among our people in Daniel's day and in our day. And he wants us at Eschaim to be part of it. You and I have a vital role to play in proclaiming the good news of Messiah here in North Texas to the Jew first, also to the Gentile. We are more than conquerors in Messiah Yeshua. Now, you and I, we need to be aware of the attacks of the evil one. We need to put on the, the full armor of God, the armor of faith, of truth, of righteousness, of peace, of the Holy Spirit, that we may stand strong in the day of struggle. We need, to, we need to oppose the prince of Persia, fanatical Islam. We also need to oppose the prince of Greece, assimilation, Hellenism, Greek philosophy versus the revelation of God, uh, Greek hedonism and immodest display versus godly purity and holiness and modesty. We need to resist the self-centered, pleasure-seeking pleasure spirit of this age. Daniel prayed for 21 days. Ask yourself, what might have happened if he had given up before the angel arrived on day 21? If he had quit. What if he quit on day 14 or, or day 15? Would the angel still have arrived with his answer? The implication from the text is maybe not. Yeshua says to pray always and never give up. Because when you pray, your prayers carry weight. When you pray, you unleash God's power. Are you praying for your friends and your family who need to put their trust in Yeshua as their redeemer, as their, as their savior and deliverer? When you pray, you impart God's power to the situation. And prayer is not some passive act on your part. Prayer is aggressive. Prayer is active. Prayer is warfare ministry. Your prayers influence the forces of heaven. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing that raises up against the knowledge of God. 
and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Messiah. At time, let's get off the sidelines. Let's enter the fight. Let's catch the vision to help make, to help make Etz Chaim a house of prayer and a house of spiritual warfare. Amen. Amen. Stand and pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. The music team to come on up. Thank you, Father. Lord, thank you for this great chapter on spiritual warfare and the unseen realm uh, and the conflict between spiritual forces of good versus evil and how it affects events here on earth. Thank you for Daniel's vision of Yeshua. Yeshua, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the Aleph and the Tav. You know all, you see all. Yes, Lord, all about us. You see our minds, our hearts, our history, our life. There's no creature hidden from your sight, Yeshua. But all things are open and laid bare before you, to whom we must give an account one day. So, Lord Yeshua, you have eyes of fire. You know. You see. Help us to be conscious of this reality, of, of your penetrating, righteous gaze. And purify us and correct us and make us holy. Refine our character, Lord, so that we become more and more like you. We know storms will come into every life. The wolf comes to every door. Help us to build a strong foundation that will stand on the day of spiritual warfare. Help us build our character, our soul on you, Yeshua. Yeshua, we open every door in our life to your light and your love and your authority and your lordship. We hold nothing back. And help us look, Lord, not to the things that are seen, but those are temporary, but the things that are unseen, for those are what is that which is eternal. Lord, help us to pray in spirit and in truth. For when we do, in your name, Yeshua, we turn loose the very powers of heaven. And help us to take every thought captive to you, Yeshua, our Lord. For we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom.